In this episode, I'll be talking about women in the Anglo-Saxon and Viking world from 450 AD to 1066. As the Roman Empire began to collapse and the Romans left Britain in the early 5th century AD, Britain was invaded by people from Germany and Scandinavia, known as Angles, Saxons, Jutes and Vikings. Women at this time were the owners of jewellery and were the patrons of the earliest known poetry written in English. At the same time, the surviving evidence throws little light on the lives of most Anglo-Saxon women. It's clear that women seemed to have a lower status than men, as they were not entitled to receive compensation for any injuries done to them. Any such compensation would instead be paid to the husband, father, guardian or slave owner. But even though evidence can be quite hard to gather in during this period, there are still four very important women that I'll be talking about in this episode who shed light on the position of women during this time. First off is Judith, a brave warrior who's hardly known at all, despite the fact that she's very, very um, closely linked to the famous Anglo-Saxon poem uh, Beowulf. This is the longest and most complete piece of Anglo-Saxon writing to survive, and it's a mythical story of a man named Beowulf who defeats monsters and eventually becomes a king. But what most people don't realise is that actually the same manuscript that is held in the British Library, um, that like the most complete one that we have um, of this uh, Beowulf story, actually also has another story called the story of Judith, which is about a female warrior who is also fighting uh, monsters and is also trying to protect her people and manages to even cut off the head of the king of an invading army. So she's certainly not someone to be messed with. Um, and she's praised in the poem as being noble, courageous, um, and everyone wanting to be like her. Now, if we think about this time period where the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were usually not only at war with each other, so the different Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of uh, Wessex and Mercia and Northumbria, etc., they were fighting each other. But there was also the Vikings um, from Scandinavia that were also invading. So the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were also trying to uh, move the, those uh, peoples out of um England. And so actually it seems like this book was written during that period where it was meant to be an example of bravery for both men and women to follow in order to defend their lands from attacking forces. So it's quite interesting that actually, you know, the, the, the story of Beowulf has gained so much attention by historians and just generally through time when actually it's part of a dual story, including a woman. It's not just a story that just happens to include a woman, but actually a woman that is doing exactly the same things as the main character of the male story. Now, luckily enough for you, I found a translation of the story of um, Judith, and I'm going to read you a section of it now to give you a little bit of a taste of what the story was actually like. So see if you can uh, get some of those words that show us that the person that wrote this clearly thought that Judith, as a female, was a courageous and brave person to try and emulate and be like. 
Judith sees the heathen man fast by his hair, dragging him towards her with her hands, and struck her hateful enemy king, Holofernes, with the splattered sword. She chopped through half his neck, so that he lay in a daze, drunken and maimed. Then the courageous lady struck the heathen hound another time, so that his head rolled forth on the floor. And so Judith had won an illustrious reward in warfare, just as God had granted her, the ruler of the skies who had given her victory. Then the beloved woman Judith was returned again to her people and spoke these words to the victorious people of her city. I can say to you all a memorable thing so that you need not mourn in your minds any longer. The King of Glory is happy with you. The triumph is given to you over those afflictions which you have long endured. The city dwellers became elated after they heard how the Holy One Judith spoke over the high wall. The army was joyous and people hurried to the stronghold gates. The men and women together pressed forward and ran in bands and troops, crowds and throngs, by the thousand towards the Lord's woman, old and young. The hearts of every man in the Mead city became gladdened after they perceived that Judith had returned to her homeland. The wise woman Judith, fretted in gold, ordered her servant to unwrap the head of the hateful heathen king Holofernes and to display it, all bloody as a sign to the city folk, to testify how she had found victory in battle. The noble one then spoke unto all these people. Here you can clearly gaze victorious heroes upon the leader of his nation, upon the head of the most hateful heathen warrior, Holofernes, unliving, who, among men, did us the worst crimes, grievous afflictions, and wished to increase them yet even more, but God would not grant him a longer life so that he might torment us. It is I that deprived him of life. So the story of Judith is clearly a really great uh, story, but it is kind of slightly mythical because of the types of uh, creatures um, that she's fighting and the fact that King Holofernes has not been um, kind of discovered as a real person in the historical record, let's say. But there are three uh, women from... Anglo-Saxon England that are very important for the politics and kingship um, during this time. So firstly, we've got Queen Bertha and she was the wife of King Ethelbert of Kent, um, who was king of Kent in the 6th century AD. Um, Bertha herself was actually from Paris, so she was French, um, but she was Christian. Uh, in During this uh, period, Bertha seems to have been the person that actually kind of welcomed the Christian missionaries that were coming from uh, the Pope in Rome, the most famous being Augustine. Um, and she, being Christian herself, because she was a French princess when she married Ethelbert, um, kind of encourages these uh, Christian missionaries to come to Ethelbert's um, court. 
Um, and she is the one that persuades her husband, Ethelbert, to be more sympathetic to Christianity and potentially for himself to also convert to uh, Christianity and abandon the old Anglo-Saxon pagan god. And in Bede's Ecclesiastical History, which is one of our most important um, historians for this uh, period of England's history. He was a monk that was uh, writing a history of the church at the time. He says that Pope, Gre- Pope Gregory the Great um, wrote letters to her. Um, so he, Bertha was in direct contact with the actual uh, Pope in Rome. So Bertha certainly had um, a lot of influence. Um, but she wasn't ruling in her own right because it was Ethelbert that was still king. But we do have evidence of a woman from Anglo-Saxon uh, England that seems to have ruled in her own right, and that's Ethelflet. Um, she died in 918 AD, and she was the daughter of King Alfred the Great, who's sometimes known as um, the first king of England because he was the leader of Wessex, which was one of the uh, larger... Uh, Anglo-Saxon kingdoms at the time. So the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is another very important historical document for this period in history, tells us um, about Ethelfled and what she was doing. So apparently she was leading armies against the Welsh and Viking forces completely alone after her husband died. So she was a you know, general of armies. Um, she was the one that gained uh, allegiance from major towns like Warwick and York, which were very important for expanding the Kingdom of Mercia, which is kind of the in the, in the centre of England. Interestingly, the police force in uh, that region today is still known as the uh, Mercian police. So it's Ethelfled's conquest that seemed to kind of have helped to pave the way for the creation of the Kingdom of England, which was only two generations later. And even more interestingly, Ethelfled seems to have left her daughter Elfwyn as her heir to the throne. So that would have meant that there would have been a female dynasty of monarchs instead of a male dynasty of monarchs, potentially, in English history. But unfortunately, Elfwyn was deposed by her uncle Edward um, very early on. Finally, we've got Queen Emma of Normandy. Now, she's one of the most important figures in 11th century English politics, but is often overlooked. Now, she was actually the wife to two kings, Ethelred the Unready, who was an Anglo-Saxon king, um, and then she actually married a Viking, King Canute. Um, when the Vikings uh, conquered England in 1016, so actually Emma is kind of like torn between these uh, different rival kingdoms and of course herself is you know, she herself is from Normandy who as you well know uh, becomes very important come 1066 um so she is the person that is providing the advice to Canute as he tries to establish his authority when he um, conquers England because he's a Viking so people don't necessarily uh, like him so much um, they consider him an invader so Emma helps the, the marriage alliance there helps to create some stability um, in Anglo-Saxon England but perhaps the even more important thing is the fact that Emma has children with both Ethelred the Anglo-Saxon king and also Canute the Viking king 
So that means that she's got um, sons from two rival kingdoms who could claim, depending on who they uh, considered more legitimate to the throne, that they should be king. Now, on top of that, she's also not afraid to lead armies herself. So she led 62 warships um, with her son by Canute, who was called Hearth Canute, um, in 1040 to try and seize the throne from one of Canute's other sons um, from a previous marriage. Um, so she was, you know, very determined that her sons were going to become the kings of England. And you may be wondering, well, half canoe, who, who, who's the other brother? Who, who's the other half brother? Well, that other half brother is Edward the Confessor, who, as you well know, um, becomes uh, king in 1042 and is the one that dies in 1066 and causes um, the controversy over who should become king next. And that's also partly due to this uh, marriage alliance that that Emma had uh, created. And it seems like Emma was pretty aware that people may um, challenge um, her marriage decisions. And so she actually commissioned a biography called In Praise of Emma, where she tries to uh, legitimise the reasoning behind her political decisions during her lifetime. Now, just before we end, I want to um, just discuss a little bit more about Viking women because they actually seem to have a lot more um, rights than Anglo-Saxon women from what we can tell from the record. And there are actually some very um, kind of scary... Uh, mythological creatures called Valkyries who are very important in the Viking world. Now, for a Viking to die in battle was the biggest uh, kind of honour that you could get because that would mean that you would get to go to the um, feasting hall of Valhalla with the king of the gods, Odin. Now, it was actually the female Valkyries that chose who died in battle and therefore who was chosen to go to Valhalla. So they had an extremely important um, job and role in ancient uh, Norse mythology and therefore also in Viking religion in general. So they're, you know, generally worshipping a, a, a range of male and female gods, but these Valkyries are important uh, women who are worshipped and they ride horses and they're, you know, kind of... Uh, clad in battle armour. We also hear of a group of women known as shield maidens in some of the Old Norse texts as well, that are women who are, you know, leaders in their communities and fighting in battle with the men as well. One of the most famous is uh, Lagatha. We're not sure if she um, was exactly historical or not but supposedly she was she ruled parts of Norway when her husband um, was away on campaign and Lagtha is one of the main characters in the Vikings TV series that's been on the History Channel since 2013. Now archaeologically we actually have a little bit of evidence for these uh, shield maiden um, characters there's been a ship burial found at Osenberg in Norway where two uh, women were 
buried inside this ship and so to be given such a massive burial like a king like that shows that they must have been really really important um, in their society and even the average women in uh, the Viking world were considered much more equal to men particularly in inheritance laws Um, they were allowed to decide who um, they could marry and could also have the power to divorce them as well which often was not the case with other societies um, throughout time So we've taken a look at Anglo-Saxon and Viking women's roles. Um, We've seen some mythological um, characters like Judith in the Anglo-Saxon world and the Valkyries in the Viking world. We've also seen some more historical people um, like Bertha, Ethelfled and Emma in the Anglo-Saxon world and um, Lagatha and other various shield majors that have been found um, archaeologically in the Viking world. Overall, women have uh, certain influential powers um, with kings, as always, particularly in the Anglo-Saxon period, but they've also been shown to be able to lead their own armies. um, And in the Viking uh, world in particular, the women seem to have um, a lot more equal rights to men. (laughs) 